Next, this month's special series, Focus on Cancer. Throughout the month of April, ReachMD talks to experts in the field about new research channels and treatment options in cancer care. Are we finding new ways to diagnose cancers of unknown primary origin? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Cancer is often an agonizing diagnosis made that much more difficult when its origin cannot be traced. Novel genetic tests may be able to help us in situations where imaging, therapy, and other genetic markers have not been effective. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Cancer. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host. My guest is Dr. F. Anthony Greco, director of the Sarah Cannon Cancer Center in Nashville. Dr. Greco, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I was wondering if we could start with just some numbers. How, how common actually is cancer of unknown primary? Well, it's a little difficult to tell. Approximately fifty to 60,000 patients in the United States per year. The reason I say it's difficult is many of these patients are called something else, even though there are reasons for this, even though they don't have lung cancer, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, several others. They're actually called this because uh, it's frustrating to not know exactly where the cancer came from and their social reasons and, and economic reasons. Why, the, why it's designated sometimes when, when the data doesn't support the, that designation or diagnosis. So someone can be labeled with lung cancer, but nobody's gone about even biopsying the lung cancer? Well, no, that's not exactly the issue. The issue is, is that uh, some patients present with like lymph nodes in between their lungs. They really don't have anything in their lung, and they're heavy smokers in the past, and the biopsies done of those lymph nodes in between their lungs, and it comes back with cancer cells that aren't inconsistent with the lung cancer, but the fact is there's no cancer in the lung that's seen. So that type of patient is frequently called lung cancer, even though that technically that patient has unknown primary cancer. So, so that makes the incidence lower than it really is. Yeah. So how do those patients usually do compared to someone with just a, a normal diagnosis of lung cancer? Do you find that, that they do poorer prognostically? Not really. You have to understand that we're talking in general about patients who have spread of their cancer. They don't have localized cancer that can just be removed or irradiated and for the anticipation that there would be a cure of the disease. So these patients, generally speaking, have spread of their cancer. So their overall prognosis is not as good as we want it to be, but some patients can do well for long periods, and we have to be able to recognize patients more appropriately in order to give the, you know, the best therapy for them. And if you go back in time, in your experience, where have you seen most of these CUPs originate from? Well, actually, uh, if you look over the years, most of them are very small primaries that we can't detect during the patient's life. And if one looks at the series of autopsies that have been done on some of these patients, we see that the intestinal tract, including the colon, the rectum, the pancreas, and the lung are, are common sites, although there's not just limited to those sites. It can be from the breast, the urinary bladder, and many other places. And we, we prove that in some of the patients who, who go on to have post-mortem examinations. Most of those patients, we never find the primary cancer during life. It's too small or it's, it's just undetectable with current technology. How are you treating currently the unknown primaries? How do you decide how to treat it if you're not exactly sure where it's from? That's a good question. It's evolving. For years, we, we empirically treated the patients. In other words, we, we just picked drugs that were had some usefulness against several cancers, so, so-called broad-spectrum type cancer drugs. And, and we used one or two of these drugs together for all the patients, sort of a shotgun approach. But as time has gone by and we've learned a little more 
now even a lot more how to identify cancers uh, better and uh, know more where they came from and therefore know a more site-specific therapy. Now we're starting to use more site-specific therapies based on some of the testing we have, which is new. So the whole concept of how to treat these patients is gradually evolving and changing. Let's talk about those changes. What are we moving towards? What do we have available right now to help us make these diagnoses? They fall into two general categories. One is what we call immunohistochemistry. Now, that's a general category, but uh, what this means, there are many stains for various proteins that can be in the cancer cells, and these stains are picking up uh, important components that can, at times, suggest what the cancer is, the type of cancer this is, and where it came from. And Uh, We've had immunohistochemistry for years, but we have more and more specific, relatively specific proteins or stains that pick up these proteins that can can suggest to us where the cancers may have come from. So that's one area, immunohistochemistry, which is becoming more and more sophisticated and more and more useful. A second area is what, what I call, in general, molecular profiling. What this means is we we are looking at the nucleic acids, in this case the RNA, ribonucleic acid, in the cancer cell itself. There's a lot of information about genes in the cancer cells, and but most of it comes from known cancers. In other words, lung cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer has sort of a signature based on the genes in those cells. We're using this molecular profiling to look at unknown primary cancers and compare the genetic makeup of those cancer cells with known cancer cells. And this is helping us along with immunohistochemistry and clinical features in determining perhaps a more appropriate site-specific treatment for these patients. Are these treatments still in the research lab or are they clinically available for anybody to use? Now, these treatments are clinically available. For instance, if the immunohistochemistry and molecular profiling testing, which are now commercially available and widespread in this country, again, it's not being used, they're not being used by everyone in such a widespread way, but they're certainly available. If they highly suggest or predict that a patient, in fact, has metastatic colorectal cancer as a cause of, for instance, tumors in their liver and without any known primary site, then treatment for colorectal cancer, we we have some preliminary information, can be quite useful for those patients. Even though they don't have documented colorectal cancer, the immunohistochemical stains and the molecular profiling is helping us to more effectively treat those patients. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special segment focused on cancer on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, your host. My guest today is Dr. F. Anthony Greco, director of the Sarah Cannon Cancer Center in Nashville. And we're talking about cancers of unknown primary and some new testing that can actually help us identify their origin. Dr. Greco, how expensive are these tests and does insurance always cover them? Well, insurance certainly doesn't always cover these tests, or for that matter, a lot of other tests. But in general, insurance covers immunohistochemical testing. This is done in pathology labs, and most uh, pathologists now are routinely doing several of these stains where the tumor tissue is actually stained for these Usually they're proteins, and if they're present, certain proteins suggest, for instance, lung cancer. Others suggest colorectal cancer. Others breast. Others melanoma. Those can be very useful. Now, 
doing a large panel of these stains can be very expensive, probably in the range. If you if you did, for instance, five of them, probably you're talking a few thousand dollars. Getting into ten, three to four thousand dollars. The molecular profiling test is just one type of test, and it's commercially available. There are at least four companies in the world that I'm aware of, two in the United States, that do the molecular profiling. That's done just one test, but the cost of that is anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500 per test. Dr. Greco, how often are you surprised when you find out that the cancer actually came from somewhere you had low suspicion of it being from? Well, I've been surprised a few times, but keep in mind, these are predictions of where the cancer is coming from. Therefore, it's not an absolute test yet. These aren't actual you know, genetic fingerprints? That's sort of what we're talking about here. But again, how accurate this is in, in patients who have unknown primary cancer still being looked at. I think it's going to be fairly accurate. It looks from early information that it's very accurate. When one looks at patients with known primary cancers and this technique of molecular profiling is applied, the assays are done, they're like 85 to 90% accurate in blinded specimens. In other words, if someone has lung cancer, they have a known lung cancer, and they have spread, let's say, into the lymph nodes under their arm. A biopsy's done uh, lymph nodes under the arm. We know they have a lung cancer. We, we apply the molecular profiling test. It's 85 to 90% accurate in predicting that it is indeed lung cancer. We know it's lung cancer, so that's reassuring. What we're talking about today, however, are patients who do not have a known primary cancer. So the prediction we hope is that accurate, but we're not sure. And what do you do with the actual patient when you have the conversation with that person and you explain to them that, you know, you have cancer, but I don't really know where it's coming from or what kind? It must be a very difficult conversation to have. It is. It's difficult for oncologists. It's difficult for their primary physicians. It's difficult for their patients and their families. And this is an entity I try to explain to the patients. You know, uh, we don't totally understand it. In general, we think there is a small primary somewhere uh, in, in a patient's body, and I can talk about with the patients where it may be or what the probabilities are, and all we're seeing are the spread, the areas where this is spread to. That's generally what I'm talking about with the patients. And we've learned over the years that some patients can actually respond to these shotgun therapies or what I call empiric therapies. They're therapies that we know can be useful against several cancers, but it's not ideal. We don't want to treat someone who has the, a breast cancer, for instance, with drugs that are useful against colorectal cancer and vice versa. We want to have a better idea what they actually have in their body so the therapy has a chance of being more more effective for them. Do these patients get angry at you and want to seek out a second opinion, thinking that it's something you did wrong, that you can't find out where it's coming from? Well, you know, of course, at times uh, any human can get angry. I think that's our nature. But in general, I would have to say most patients aren't angry. They're frustrated. They're asking why, and they don't understand. Of course, we don't, and I don't understand entirely myself. In general, patients should seek a second opinion if they have a difficult problem. I approve that. And patients I see, for, I, I encourage them to seek second opinions. Many of the patients I see, in fact, are coming to see me uh, for an opinion regarding their pro this problem just because I, I spe sort of specialize in this area. Tell me a little bit about the actual treatments you use for the unknown primaries, specific drugs that you will use as your shotgun that are considered broad-spectrum chemotherapeutic agents. 
there's a popular combination of drugs, uh, paclitaxel, a uh, known uh, trade name as Taxol, and carboplatin, which has been around for several years. Those two drugs, Taxol and carboplatinum, used together either to those two or a third drug known as a toposide has been around for a long time. And, and those drugs are one combination of so-called shotgun therapy or empiric therapy that can be used for these patients and produce you know, some benefit for a substantial number of these patients. And that's sort of the past, and that's sort of changing as we as we go along now because of these newer diagnostic tests, which we think will lead to more site-specific therapy rather than shotgun therapy. I'm going to throw out an anecdotal story. I have an 80-year-old aunt with a cancer of unknown primary originating in her pelvis, now in her brain, and, and she is on an agent I don't have very much familiarity with, Tarsiva, and she seems to be doing well and kind of just maintaining. How does that agent work? Well, the drug Tarsiva or Erlotinib, which is the generic name, is that's a, that's a pill. It actually blocks the epidermal growth factor receptor. We know that some cancers are driven by this gene that an active epidermal growth factor receptor and probably a cancer cell either makes this ligand, this epidermal growth factor, or something very similar to it that attaches to this receptor and then drives the cells, makes the cells grow and spread. This particular drug, which is useful in a subset of patients, mainly with lung cancer, it's also been found to be helpful in some patients with pancreatic cancer, can actually block the growth of the cells and, and keep them from growing. Again, in your aunt, if the suspicion was that this may be lung cancer, particularly if she were a non-smoker, then this would be a very appropriate type of therapy to consider for her. And are there ever cases when this genetic testing you were talking about or the molecular profiling is not helpful? Like, let's say if a tumor is, is too small and you can't even get it out to testing. Yes, that's one, one problem. Technically, you just don't have enough of the cancer. It has to contain RNA because the testing is actually based upon the RNA. And if the RNA is, de is denatured or gone, then you can't do it. The second thing is sometimes you get results which don't fit at all and, you know, you can't put it together. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but you have to use the whole picture, the characteristics of the patient, the immunohistochemistry, as well as these newer tests, molecular profiling, which is not being used a lot yet because doctors, oncologists want validation of this where it's being validated. So I think that's going to be right around the corner. Well, Dr. Greco, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, I would appreciate it. Good to be on today. My guest was Dr. F. Anthony Greco, the director of the Sarah Cannon Cancer Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Cancer. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.